two, one, go. <laughs> um, no. Uh, I'm excited to do this, man. Finally doing it. <laughs> it's only been, what, like six months? We've known each other for a little bit of time. <laughs> we met in New York. We met in New York. We met in New York when you were doing the, uh, the podcast with uh, Sam. Yes. Did a podcast with Sam. Shout out, Sam. Um, no, and then I think my biggest thing was I was super surprised you lived in Miami. Um, okay. I, I don't know. I think it's, I don't know what I expected when I moved to Miami, but it's, I've met a lot of cool people and uh, it's been awesome hanging out. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't tell you how much fun it's been. Um, but yeah, we, it's funny, we, we what were we doing? We were at the, at the penthouse in New York for, for like the token launch party or something. For uh, Sam. For Sam, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And I was like, huh. I remember we were, we were at the, at the, uh, um, at the bar getting drinks. Yeah. And she was like, what do you want? And I was like, I have no idea what I want. Just like, give me something. And then you made some sort of snarky comment. I was like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm Logan. Who are you? I'm like, I got, I got home, I guess. And then we just started talking. No, and, uh, 30 seconds later, we we're talking about like hardware and parallelization. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> and he were like, wait, 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 who are you again? I was like, wait, who are you again? <laughs> so. No, it was good. Um, no, thank you. I mean, I am excited to do this. I think uh, you'll uh, share some spicy takes and uh, let the world know who you are. Uh, but maybe we could just start off with like who you are, uh, what you do, and how you got to this point. Okay. Um, I'm uh, not sure how where to start. So I'm I'm Omar Yahya. That's that's how you pronounce my name. That's your, actually my first name. It's Omar, but anyway. Uh, and I spent a lot of time uh, outside of crypto when I was in, in academia and I was very interested in like a lot of very esoteric topics, um, more on the applied math side and the applied physics side, nothing to do with cryptography, nothing to do with finance or economics, um, just to do with just, I was infatuated by how the world works. And, and more importantly, I was really interested in like how you model and how you interpret the way things are. Mm -hmm. And as, when I was younger, I had this almost, almost this, this like uh, crazy hypothesis that like everything could be like quantified and you can write down an equation that exp explained everything. And it was just a matter of like finding that equation. And if you look at like the history and like the pursuit of science, it was a lot like that. It was a lot of just very crazy, very ambitious people that thought like, if only I was smarter as a person or as a scientist, I could just write down an equation that would describe these things. And at first I thought, surely we could do this for the material world. So surely I could do this to describe like the moon and the sun and the stars and the ocean and things like that. And humanity's made a lot of progress. And so that I thought was very inspiring. But then I thought, okay, what is sort of missing? And when I was younger, I was really interested in like human behavior. Uh, could you write, write down simple mathematical equations that model human behavior? And I would sort of like do this. I would, especially in college, I would like go out with people and I would like run these little like experiments of mine or like I would meet someone and I would like try and do the scientific method on that person. I'd be like, who is that guy? And, you know, what's my hypothesis as to like what makes him tick or makes her sometimes with, with girls? I would, who, what made them tick? And then I would go back home and I would sort of like on these little index cards, I swear, this is, this is a real story. I would like try and like mathematically model that person 
And like, think from like a game theory perspective, how is this guy, or this guy or girl, how are they inclined to behave? And, and this was very amateur, but it was stuff that I was learning about at the time. Um, this was when I, I started uni and I just, I was always fascinated by that idea. And I, I, as I've gotten older, I think I've become a little bit, a little bit, um, disillusioned with the idea, not because I don't fundamentally think that we live in a material world and everything can be quantified, but it's because it's really, really hard. And, uh, like prediction I I've learned uh, you have to really take with a grain of salt that it is extraordinarily difficult just because of the sheer number of parameters that govern like the way anything behaves. Uh, in a very reduced setting, we can model things. And I think science is not the rule. It's actually the exception. Only in the scientific world can you isolate physical phenomenon and you can write down a simple set of governing equations that actually faithfully describe the way the system works and you can go and you can replicate these experiments and you can test your hypotheses this in no way is in the purview of like the social sciences or when we talk about like human behavior that's fundamentally why i don't think it's 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 like plausible to, to think the way i used to think because you cannot have a simple platonic uh, like experiment people call this like the ludic fallacy this idea that you can that the world conforms to very very simple models only a very very small corner of the world sort of behaves like that and that that we call the physical and the material world and like physics. That's sort of what we're interested in. Everything else to do with human behavior, I don't know. <laughs> I just throw my hand up. I don't know. So that was more your youth, but then or in like your undergrad, but then you kept doing additional school and decided to uh, continue studies at Princeton and do That's your right. PhD. That's right. Uh, maybe touch upon like what you did there and some of your like further learnings. Sure, sure. So I'll tell you how I even ended up there. I, in my, starting from my second year in uni, I got really interested in like research. I, I was, um, I would go to lectures sometimes and I would, and I would sit down and I'd realize like the, the lecture was, uh, however nice they may be, they were still just telling me about what was in the book. So I said, okay, I mean, it's probably easier if I just go back home and read the textbook. And that's pretty much what I did for like four years. So I said, okay, this is fine. It's probably not like a best use of my time. I should probably do something else. And so I would like walk around the departments and I would like bother people uh, and ask them like, what it is that you're doing? Like you clearly, you seem important. You have assistants and like secretaries and like students running around. Like surely you, you, you do something important. Can, can I just like follow you around? And they would let me in their lives. They, really, they would. And at some point they paid me, which I thought was ridiculous because I was like, what the, what, what the hell do I know about any of this stuff? And they would pay me to like help them like do research. And like at some point as a research assistant, uh, I got promoted to like, like a research student or whatever. And I worked in like, I must have, I must have done research in like three or four different departments, like uh, the electrical engineering department, the applied physics department, the aerospace engineering department. I was just so fascinated by what people were studying. And, and a lot of it came down to, oh, I was really interested in like propulsion and like, and, and uh, rocket science is the, like the sort of common term that people use. And I was like, why not? I mean, wh where I came, where I grew up, this was not something that like we had access to. I grew up in, in Egypt and it's just not a thing. Um, I'd never even seen a rocket uh, sort of in person. But when I came to the United States, you could go see these things like casually. So, so that was, you know, this seems like worthy. It's a very curious topic and worthy of pursuit. And so I did that for, for a while. And, and that's when I really got into like propulsion. And that led me to think about like the mathematics behind propulsion. 
And it got me into like studying fluid mechanics and, and chemistry and all of these sort of wonderful topics. And funny enough, at some point, there was not enough. I was, go I was hassling the departments to like teach me about or like allow me to sit in on these courses. And they, they were like, we don't have any courses that like fit the Venn diagram of your interests. It's what they did, which I thought was really hilarious. They let me come up with my own class. I literally <laughs> went to the registrar's department. True story. And they made me fill out a form. And like, as long as someone was willing to sign off on it, some of the faculty members willing to sign off on it, I could actually make my own course. And I could assign credits and like they give me a grade on it. And it was fantastic. And the first comment they had was, the name you chose was too long. It has to fit into like 40 characters or whatever. I mean, I came up with something. I was like, you know, who gets to pick their own class? I'm just going to make a fancy class. Um, and that was, uh, 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 I studied with this uh, brilliant professor at um, uh, electric engineering department. His name is Peter Bamel. And um, he told me, hey, I wonder if we could, um, I wonder if we could capture a lot of the waste energy that leaves uh, a lot of mechanical systems or thermodynamic systems. And I wonder if we could like mathematically design uh, uh, like an optical system that does this. And I said, these all sound like great ideas, but I don't know how to do them. He said, well, just come into the lab and like, we'll, we'll for a semester, we'll like, this will be your course. And so he said, come up with a name for it. And I, said, I, call it I just call it like thermophotovoltaics or something, which all that means is that you use like PV cells, that's what the photovoltaics are, to capture the, the sort of wasted heat. And, and we spent a lot of time um, writing these, you know, these, uh, uh, these solvers that would like, in three dimensions, um, allow you to predict how these systems would behave. And that's when I learned all about Maxwell's equations. And, um, you know, we can, perhaps some of the most interesting equations in all of physics are Maxwell's equations. And the only reason is because they so accurately describe everyday phenomenon, but they're linear. They're linear equations, which means they're, and like layman's, they're very, very simple uh, to write down the solutions to. And they hold in like a variety of different conditions, which is a very, very odd thing. And it's very rare in physics, but they, they're named after this fella. Uh, I think he was a Scotsman, um, uh, James Cook Maxwell, who's sort of the father of the uh, theory of electricity and magnetism. And one of his great insights was that like electricity and magnetism are sort of two sides of the same coin. But anyway, I studied that for a long time. And then, and then at some point I realized I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of like research. You, you can actually sit at the frontier of what people know and what they don't know, and then maybe you can make a contribution. So after that, I spent some time, like I said before, studying like rocket propulsion. Uh, and at my university, we had this one very esoteric laboratory that was actually founded as part of the Apollo program in America, the, the program that sent man to the moon. And so they had these monstrous facilities um, that you could literally have like a proper rocket engine there, not like a full scale one, but you know, one that was big enough to like blow your head off. Um, and and we would study these systems, and again we would I sort of you know think about like the kind of mathematical systems that you need to write down to be, you know explain explain the behavior of these things. And at some point I ran out of time. They're like, you have to you have to graduate now. You have to leave. And I was like, well, you know, can I stay? And they're like, you can stay, but you've been here long enough. You should probably go somewhere else. <laughs> and I said, well, fair enough. Who's willing to take me? So I just I remember just emailing um, uh, a faculty at Princeton. And just telling them, like, hey, this is sort of what I do. And like, I looked you guys up and, you know, it's clear that you guys are brilliant. And I've sort of learned a thing or two where I was and I kind of want to continue to learn some more. And they were like, come on down. I was like, okay, <laughs> easy enough. Um, and then they said, oh, you know, we have this sort of PhD program where you have to sort of learn these sort of things and then you can 
teach a little bit and then you have to do some sort of original scientific research and that, that's it i said okay that sounds fun uh, you know fun enough but funny enough probably after i went um and and part of the reason i went and this is true it, it was personal uh, um some of my heroes growing up were sort of alan turing um dick feynman who's a physicist i think he won the nobel prize in, in 1965 um uh, uh, John Nash, all of these people, they went to the uh, graduate college uh, in Princeton, which is where I actually stayed um, as a first year. And the first thing I did when I arrived was just like look for their rooms. And I actually <laughs> ended up staying actually in Alan Turing's room. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, the, the father of the, the modern computer, the Turing machine. When we talk about at some point, maybe we'll talk about like Turing complete languages. Yeah, it's the same person, Alan Turing. Um, in the graduate college, I, I remember, and I was just, I was just so infatuated by the idea that you could walk in these giants' footsteps. He went to Princeton. He went to Princeton for graduate school. I think, I believe, he went to Cambridge uh, for his undergraduate, but he did his PhD at Princeton. That's cool. Right before that. the, yeah, right before the war. Hmm. Yeah, and so, so did so did Dick Feynman. In fact, Dick Feynman, and I think it was 1939, 1940, he left. He was the he was the only person to take the trains from Princeton uh, to Los Alamos in New Mexico, and because the uh, the War Department at the time didn't want didn't want people to like realize what was going on, they told everyone, "Hey, make sure all the scientists from Princeton or like uh, in New York, like Columbia, don't leave from the same stations because it would look suspicious." So Feynman, being Feynman, said, "Assuming everybody else does that, I could just leave for Princeton, right?" <laughs> As he walks up to the train station, and then. The the um, the guy at the ticketing uh, uh, booth says like oh so all of this stuff is for you because all of the lab equipment and all of the chairs and desks and all of the stuff that was leaving Princeton for everyone the entire faculty was just assigned to one guy and so he's like oh that's you and that, that was very sort of quintessential Iron but he left actually before even he finished we had to come back uh, after the war effort to just wrap wrap his stuff up and then um, go on to to be a faculty I think he started at uh, Cornell. Um, that was probably the peak of my like like infatuation with the idea that we that I can spend my entire life just working on like scientific problems. And yeah. it appeared to me that that's what these people did. That's what Paul Feynman, uh, Richard Feynman, Paul Dirac, um, uh, Isidore Rabi, these guys. That, that, it appeared to me that that's what they did. But then I realized that maybe that's not maybe that's not the world that we live in today. The way in which like academic research was funded back then, the, the way in which people chose which topics to study, the way in which advisors chose the students that they had, all of these things were materially different than we are today. And today I would say it's much more industrialized. It, it, and I, I just, at some point, I, it didn't occur to me that the way I saw uh, academic research being done around the world, it didn't occur to me that maybe that's what I'd be doing for the rest of the rest of, of uh, my, my life. And, you know, but who knows? I was, I was young. I still am young now. But at the time, I just I didn't know what to do. So I started asking myself, so what is it that I like? What is it about this academic stuff that I really like and really enjoy? And I realized it, there was probably a handful of things that, that really, really made me excited. But they weren't uh, monopolized by academia at all. And these things were like this idea that I could collaborate with people all over the world. We can work together on these very difficult problems and almost like in secrecy because, and in secrecy not because we protected it, but it's because nobody else knew what we were doing because, well, because just, you know, it was a very niche topic or it was a, an uninteresting topic to most. 
So there's almost like this band of, of, of people working together on these problems. And the, the question became like, well, could I find this somewhere, somewhere else? And so, uh, and could there be more money at stake? Or could there be more, you know, could there be an incentive beyond just intellectual curiosity, which I think for many things is enough, but it certainly does not align the incentives of a lot of people. And so that's when I stumbled upon venture. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Uh, but so going, f I mean, you're very heavily in academia, you're doing all the, your studies, uh, and ultimately stumbled upon venture. And then that took you to Arrington that's Capital. Right. That's right. Uh, and you were head of research for them? We, were, we had over there, we had, um, it, it was, it was a vehicle that we did uh, venture from and liquid trading. Uh, so we, there was like a variety of different um, functions at the fund. There was uh, sort of somebody was looking at ecosystems, somebody was looking at liquid trading, somebody was looking at venture, somebody was looking at uh, you know how you know uh, fund operations and stuff. My part was you know research and due diligence. I was um, this was part of the reason I joined, and certainly the, the the part that kept me very interested. This idea that like I could work on the technical aspects, whether it was um, just coming up with theses, whether it was thinking about the investments, whether it was doing due diligence, which was something that really interested me on the actual investments. So this idea that somebody is coming to you and saying, here is my proposition, here's the business model, and here is sort of a sketch of the architecture of how this technically could function. And I could just look at it and think, wow, this is interesting. This, there might be promise there. Or, you know, this might not be, this might not be the best idea. Or this might, like, it might sound good on paper, but when you come to implement these things, they might not be like technically feasible, and I found great pleasure in that. Not because I like to, you know, fund things, but it was because I, I because I just thought that that's interesting. It has a like, a, you're responsible for allocating people's capital, and so at the end of the day, you it, you have to be completely and utterly aware of your circle of competence, what it is that you understand, and what it is that you don't understand, and what you do understand, you try and allocate capital to in a way that's like prudent and like try and do like investments that make sense to you and that you can justify later and the stuff that you don't know anything about you just stay away from and having no opinion is is perfectly okay i have no opinion on most things yeah. but i don't invest in most things i only invest in a small subset of things yeah so i think that's a very interesting transition one i mean going into venture but then also just like pivoting from into crypto so could you talk about i mean I, you kind of touched upon the venture part, but could you also touch upon like why crypto? Why crypto? So um, this is a, a, like a very like funny personal story, but um, I, I suspect it's how lots of people that are not from the US, I suspect it's how they got like get interested in crypto. I got rugged. I got straight up rugged. Uh, the Egyptian Central Bank in 2016 decided to lock capital. So uh, uh, like inhibit the flow of capital outside of the US. And then uh, uh, remove the peg from the currency, which was pegged for quite some time, and into a floating exchange rate. And they straight up locked up the capital in the banks. You couldn't take dollars out. You could only keep them in the local currency. And they rugged us. And this was 2016. So I was like, I mean, you know, man's been to the moon. We, we have, you know, vaccines. We have all of these sort of things. How is it that we haven't figured out this problem of money? How is it that we can't, like... I just don't have a vehicle by which, like, after I've worked and after I've earned some amount of, like, assets or capital or accumulated and whatever, how is it that I can't store it somewhere? How ridiculous is that? And so I just thought, like, 
I that at the time I got attracted to like the like the, the Austrian school of economics, the literature of the Austrian school, and then they started talking about like you know of course you can you can store it in gold, and I said, nah, that doesn't seem like a great idea. Uh, just seems a bit antiquated. Surely there is a better way. So that's when I really got into like cryptographically private money, uh, secure private money. This idea that you can have a shared ledger and everyone can like attest this is how much money you have and everybody can see it and nobody can touch it unless you unless unless they have your your private key or your your secret so to that i thought was fascinating i said great so let me let me sort of try and like buy this thing and so i got into bitcoin and so i remember this was that i was at princeton at the time and there was a vibrant community in the like the, the cryptocurrency space then it wasn't called Web3 then, it was just crypto. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, 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 somebody had pointed me to the, to the white paper. They said, you should probably go read the Bitcoin white paper. I said, okay. So I, I read the Bitcoin white paper. And I was like, this sort, of, this sort of makes sense. There's a lot of like mathematical ambiguity. Like I knew this could not be it. I knew the person who had actually like written the white paper and the person who like wrote the, inst- the implementation of it, they, they had to be at least different people or at least like of different mindsets. Because just all alone, if you actually go back and try and replicate that paper, there's a bunch of like different mathematical mistakes in that paper. So it's not enough. I, I was sure that like I was just missing something. Surely there was more to it than that. And I talked to someone who I respected a lot and who's you know much smarter than I am. He said, "Yeah, but you know it works fine." I said, "Okay, fair enough." So I'm, I'm just you know that was my little due diligence. I was like, "Okay, I'm just gonna go buy buy something." And I remember it was, it was a weekend. It was a Saturday. I said, "Okay." So I remember I allocated some capital to it, and then and I came back the next weekend. And I was like, "Well, now what?" <laughs> now that I have, now that I bought this coin, what do I do with it? And I went back to the same person and I asked him, "Now what?" And he just sort of, you know, he, he was he was very cheeky. He looked at me. He said, "So have you heard of Ethereum?" I said, <laughs> <laughs> and so, I said no. And then he pointed me to uh, I, th- I think the, it was the Ethereum yellow paper at the time. And I was like, "Now we're talking." That was the one written by Gav, by Gavin Wood. And if, if you read that paper, you're like, ah, okay. So some deep thought has gone into how we, we go from just like moving like coins around to like having like a decentralized public state transition machine. And I was like, okay, now we're talking. So that's when, it, that's a sort of my light bulb moment. Huh. It's super interesting. I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, the money aspect does suck. It's, it's super interesting that, I mean, even now, like in Turkey, I think recently with inflation, like the last couple of weeks, it's been reported like they have like 70% inflation, which is insane. Nice. But I I think <laughs> the now what part question is super interesting because you buy Bitcoin and then you're like, okay, what else do I do? Yeah. What else, uh, I mean, I realized only because like, you know, when you have money in your checking account, you use it for a lot of different things. You use it for payments, you use it to, uh, um, you know, to pay your rent, you use it to whatever, you use it to put it in your investment account. like. There's a bunch of stuff that you do with it. But it occurred to me as soon as I, I put it in my wallet and I was like, there's nothing else to do with it. So I just thought it was odd. And this is from a very naive perspective. I was like, there's literally nothing else to do. So now that you have a little bit more nuanced opinions, uh, what is your point of view on Bitcoin? What do I do with it? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you think it's a good store of wealth or do you think ultimately like something else like Ethereum, Solana or... Um, any of these other smart contract platforms um, will serve a better purpose for kind of like store of wealth um, or medium of exchange. Okay. Well, I'll say a few things about that. First, when you have a store of value, it's not, it doesn't have to be exclusive. There can be multiple ways for one to store value. So to say that 
Bitcoin is a good store of value does not negate that other things could also be a good, good source of value. And I do think Bitcoin can be a good store of value. There is enough people who, and it is a good store of value, not because of anything technical or not because of anything related to the code. And this is something that I find strange that people continue to like propagate. It has everything to do with social consensus. Yeah. It is the same reason why gold stores it value very well. It's the same reason why some currencies store their value better relative to other currencies. Most of them don't on an absolute scale, on a person power scale. It's because of social consensus. Enough people have bought into or, or you know, bought into in, in, a, in a, a voluntary way, in a voluntary sense, carry this idea that this can be a store of value, that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's fine. But the, the only thing to remember there is that it has nothing to do with uh, uh, the code. It has nothing to do with the fact that enshrined in it somewhere is the fact that there is a fixed supply. Because with, it, with social consensus, you can change the fixed supply. It is, it's not a big deal. You make it deflationary if you wanted to. Everything about everything about it can change if enough people want it to change, and that uh, I'll I'll steal a, a quote from uh, Sri Ram, who was on your, your last podcast. He said something like quite profound. He said the, the, the most fundamental property, uh, the defining property of any public ledger, is open state. Mm-hmm. This idea that if enough people look at the ledger and decide there's one agent doing something that we're not happy about, they can just fork the chain and they can move on with their lives. And in the same way, if enough people realize that we like this idea of Bitcoin, but something about it doesn't appeal to us, maybe it's the fixed supply, maybe it's you know the, the consensus model, whatever. If enough people are interested, they will just fork the chain yeah. and they will move on. Yeah. So it it, it 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 has everything to do with social consensus and very little to do with uh, what actually the Bitcoin core software does. No, I like it. It's Bitcoin uh, kind of is the gateway, but I do think like it gets a lot more interesting as you start looking at the Turing complete blockchains, the smart contracts, and start um, kind of like getting people to actually use the stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and to be fair, because we we don't want to like lean on. I mean, there's been a lot of work on the like the Bitcoin core software development and people building around. And there are environments of people who who think it is interesting um, to develop uh, a smart contract-like capability on Bitcoin. I just think it's it's almost like a contradiction to the ethos of Bitcoin. The, the, the reason why, or the, a technical reason why it can work well as a store of value is because of the ossification it's achieved in terms of like, this is what it is. It's not going to change. It only does one thing and it does it very well and it's very decentralized and it's very secure. So that's it. That's it. And if you're if you're if you're happy with that, then I find it slightly contradictory to say, but <laughs> we can also do other things. Yeah. Well, you sort of you you can, but then you undermine the sort of ethos that you had to begin with. So I agree. Yeah. It's yeah. Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin's funny. Um, but anyways, no, I, I think it's just a super interesting story going from um, I mean, kind of your beginning studies trying to model everything and everybody uh, to kind of doing more research driven with the PhD at Princeton and getting into venture. Um, it's I, I'm always fascinated by people's journeys because it's like, I think always like looking back, like everything kind of seems easy ish, but like at the time and like making the decisions that you do, it's not like straightforward. And like, mm-hmm. it's very hard to kind of navigate the waters into, I mean, end up where you are so i I find people's journeys fascinating i'll be completely honest with you i had no idea what i was doing i continue to have no idea what i'm doing and to (laughs) and to 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 even like pretend 
that there was any sort of lineage that I was trying to do. It's completely ridiculous. When I, when I was an undergraduate, I had no idea what I wanted to do after. When I was in graduate school, I had no idea what I wanted to do after. I had, like, in, if you had asked me two years in when I was a, 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 in graduate school, like, in, in two or three year, years or whatever, you'll be doing, you'll, you'll have your, your venture fund and you'll be deploying capital and you'll be working. For, I would have I would called it completely ludicrous. It was so outside of the scope of my thinking. So, and I think that's actually like the hallmark of growth. The hallmark of growth is that you end up on a trajectory that's completely unanticipated. And so interesting that you think back and you look like, wow, how on earth did I get here? <laughs> I fully agree. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I definitely agree. Well, maybe kind of jumping off from there, uh, you were at uh, um, this previous venture fund, and now you have your own venture fund. That's right. Uh, maybe talk about that and then kind of like some things that you're doing at your venture fund compared to, say, like other venture funds. Because one thing that... I very much appreciate about you is your technical background and your technical capabilities. Uh, and I've been very surprised by other venture capitalists in the space or even like the space, like in large part of how non-technical people really are that are investing in the space. And so maybe just kind of touching upon like what you're doing and kind of like your interactions with other uh, investors in the space. Sure. Sure. So, um, I'm the managing partner of a fund called Prudencia Digital. And Prudencia is just the Latin word for prudence. And it's, it's one of our guiding philosophies. We think we've seen enough uh, uh, like investments in the space where uh, because of the lack of prudence, things sort of went sour. Uh, and we, we, uh, I've always thought it was, an, it was an odd idea, especially it's one thing if, you raise, if, if you're deploying your own funds. Uh, this is a free country. You can do whatever you want. I mean, if you want to, you know, be a complete degenerate and just like blow it. I'm, it's completely your prerogative. I have nothing to say about that. Um, people should be do you know they should be able to do whatever you want. But the second you raise capital, and the second people entrust you with their capital, you have a duty to them. And and the first duty they have to you have to them is the is the duty of prudence. You have to take care of their capital as if it were your own, and you have to study every prospective investment as if it were your own. And uh, and that you needed to protect it, and that uh, it really, really resonated with me that idea. And I thought it was so important that I mean, people entrust you with their money, and money is 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 in many ways freedom. It is literally a material representation of freedom. And if and if people disagree, just try having try having a lot of money, and then try having no money, and compare those two states, and you will see the the defining feature of the delta between those two states is, is that like one was much freer than. You get much freedom in your time. You get freedom of, of what you do and who you see and what you eat. It's just freedom. So when people entrust you with that, you have to be very careful. And you cannot be cavalier. And so that, that's where the name comes from. And, and the, the, the point of the fund is to allow us to deploy capital in the areas that we thought were very exciting and were very interested about. And that's very, very early stage venture in Web3. We call it Web3 now because whatever. Uh, in, in, in crypto, in crypto primitives. And the reason we like early stages, we really, really like to build with people. It's, it, we find it very, very fun and interesting and, and uh, both personally and economically rewarding to work on projects before there is a real product. Before there, sometimes before there's even a real idea, sketching out the architecture, running a feasibility study, thinking about what it means to have a token, thinking about what a token is supposed to do, Thinking about what kind of cryptographic primitives that we have today that we didn't have five years ago that enables enable us to do just these miraculous things. And I'm, perhaps we'll mention it later. For example, the, yeah, 
you know, uh, validity proofs or, or ZKPs in general, in their current form, they did not exist five years ago. The, the amount of stuff that you could do with them today on a practical level is just, it's amazing that we are here today relative to where we were five or 10 years ago. And it really excites us to you to try and like help people use these primitives to build novel, like either financial instruments, infrastructure, things that just don't exist. And the closer we are to that, to that genesis of that idea, the more excited we are personally. And the more we think we have like edge, the more we think we are able to contribute. And it brings me to the second point that you asked, which is this idea of, a, of like non-technical VCs is, is how you call them or non-technical capital allocators. I, I just, I can't wrap my head around how one does this, how one allocates capital to the space or to any space, forget, 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 forget what without understanding it. I mean, the example is, the example is like, is like uh, I mean, did you watch Formula One? Or you're, you're familiar with Formula One. You have, you have, you have uh, you know, uh, teams that have a, a budget. I think it's like $150 million or it's capped yeah, there. Yeah. And then they, they have to like design the cars and design the engines and work with manufacturers and hire a driver and train the driver on the car. It's an extraordinarily sophisticated process uh, for, you know, a race in which, you know, things are going, you know, hundreds of kilometers an hour. Now, imagine I entrusted you with that responsibility. <laughs> no, really, really. It, 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 there's many analogies here. Imagine I entrusted you with that responsibility. And I came to you and I said, I need, I need you to do a few things for me. First of all, I need you to like pick which car design is best. And then I need you to pick like the type of engine or like the configuration of the engine that works best. And not only do I need you to tell me that now, I need you to predict what's going to be the dominant type of engines 10 years from now. Adding to that, I also want you to tell me which features of the engine you think is most important <laughs> and then which are replaceable and which are not and what advances are, are we going to get in like combustion technology that's going to like enable us to replace certain parts or modify certain parts, all of which is going to affect the performance of the car. Then you come to me and you say, what, what's an engine? How does it work? I'm like, fuck off, right? <laughs> it's like, I mean, this is a completely useless conversation. Yeah. And now I'm asking you, hey, by the way, here's a hundred million dollars or here's whatever, here's a certain amount of capital, go deploy it into trying answering these questions. This would be completely, uh, like, completely foreign. But that's what we've seen in the space. That is what we've seen in the space to some to some degree. And and to be fair, we've seen that in like other spaces as well. But yeah. somehow something about crypto, and perhaps it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a very low barrier to entry space, so people can approach it however way they want. But it doesn't mean that you you get to be cavalier. It doesn't mean that you get to be like. I don't want to use the word ignorance because it's not it's not ignorance. It's more just illiteracy. It's more just the content is there. This is like, for the most part, open source code. You can read it. And if you can't read it, if you're not inclined, if you're not interested, you can get somebody else to read it. I mean, there are, there are plenty of brilliant like software engineers and like programmers that can read this stuff. It's not, it's not particularly complicated. And the stuff is there. You can read it. You just have to read it. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you're entrusted with capital. <laughs> no, it, it, it is interesting. I, I think I spent too much time reading. <laughs> no such for, thing. For a long time, I, I locked myself up and just read a bunch. And then I started going to some conferences. And I thought, like, the knowledge that I had was all kind of uh, common knowledge. But I found out very quickly uh, people uh, did not uh, know that much. Uh, and that the stuff that I thought was common knowledge was actually. Uh, <laughs> not very common at all so it's it's been an interesting journey just like uh talking with people in the space and um the different people at the conferences but i think so uh, 
adding to that, I think it exists in some fashion on the founder side too. So I've spoken to enough founders to realize that that problem is pervasive and that maybe it might be equally dangerous. And the reason is why choose build one primitive versus the other? Why choose build on one network versus the other? Like surely you have either like some economic hypothesis or some like technological hypothesis. But many times you talk to founders and they're like, well, I just sort of, it's path dependent. I just sort of stumbled in uh, onto this and I decided to do it. Or, you know, maybe there was a grant here. So I decided to work on this. And there's not enough thinking about the problem. There's always the immediate bias to jump towards the solution. Let me talk to you about the product. No, how about we talk about the problem from first principles, which is something you're very good at. How about we just break it down? First of all, ask ourselves what it is that we're trying to solve. Why is this particular network uniquely capable of supporting the solution? And what are the features of the solution that need to exist for this to like actually be like to actually address the problem? Because in many times we can be trying to solve a problem and realize that we're actually solving past the problem. We're solving something that's similar to, but not exactly related to the problem that we're trying to solve. Yeah. All of these things have to be at the forefront. They can't be, uh, you know, we'll figure it out when we when we write the fund deck, right? And, or we'll figure it out when we write the, um, the, 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 the deck for raising money if you're a founder. This has to be at the forefront. And iteration and like a heuristic approach to doing this is the way to get it wrong and get it wrong often and like repeat the process. There's no shame in that. That is how like innovation works. Not pick one thing, like, you know, throw dots at a wall and like the one that sticks, we run with it. No, no, no. Be skeptical. Be skeptical of your own thinking. Be skeptical of what other people tell you, which again, something I think you're very good at, which is what, like why I like hang out with you a lot is because we, do, we just get to do that a lot. We get, we get to be very skeptical of ourselves. And sometimes other people and and we get to learn that way for sure right maybe kind of like touching on like the founder side of things uh especially now kind of with the luna and the 3ac stuff um kind of exploding uh how have from like the venture capital side um and valuations how have you kind of seen those like reset or um kind of going forward after not only this, but maybe even like comment on just like how crazy things got like throughout like the past year and now kind of where they're at or where you think they're going to be going. Sure, sure. Um, let's, let's just take a step back. Let's see where we were about a year ago, a year ago today. We we're July 2022. So a year ago today, we were in, uh, in the middle of like the explosion of like uh, layer twos, the new L1, so Avalanche, Solana. Uh, um, uh, the NFT space was blowing up. I mean, this was just absolutely a, a carnival, just a, an absolute carnival of primitives. It was amazing. It was amazing. It was a tremendous amount of fun. But the speculation was rampant, absolutely rampant. And I still remember, because I mean, I remember the Avalanche um, uh, work from a long time ago, from like 2018, 2019. And I remember thinking, wow, people, why are people excited about this now? And so I just, I started to ask people like, you know, do you know anything about Avalanche? Or, you know, why are you so... Uh, Particularly, because uh, I remember at some point, just people would not stop talking. I mean, it is a wonderful network, and I, I'm I'm a big fan. But I was curious why others were big fans, and nobody could articulate anything about it. So I was like, wait, 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 hold on, this doesn't make any sense. Like, is this like you know a, a counter bet on like you know maybe some aspect of Ethereum that you don't like, and so that's why you like uh, Avalanche? Like, no, I'm like, so maybe uh, so surely you've stumbled upon like Snowball and like how the like the that consensus system works, and surely you're intrigued by that. What's Snowball? just a lot of these conversations i'm like ah so you know you've read the ethereum roadmap you, you've lo looked at like gasper and and i'm like and you 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 know you, you you found this more interesting than that they're like what, you know what's what's gasper so it, it just it, it occurred to me then 
that even though the space had a lot of capital, at some point, the, I think the market cap of the space was two or three trillion dollars, which for a nascent space was a lot of money. And nobody could still articulate. So I was like, okay, we are clearly at the height of like, uh, uh, like a speculative mania, or not at the height of it. Of course, I, I couldn't, and and nobody else could tell you exactly where the top is. But you could tell at least that we were in surely some sort of like, you know, frenzy. And I remember the private deals being done by then. Uh, it, it started with you know, maybe a year before that, the, the, a seed valuation, a seed round valuation was a one at ten. One, one, you raise a million dollars, you dilute yourself by 10%, you, you raise a million dollars at a $10 million valuation. Very quickly became a two at 20. The two at 20 became the three at 30. And then the three at 30 became four at 40. And I think that's sort of where we stopped. We started getting a long tail of like really absurd pre-product. Like all you had was a team that had some perhaps relevant, mostly irrelevant backgrounds in, in something else, come to the space and say, this is the idea that we have, you know, 10 page slide deck. I'm raising it at $100 million valuation. And I'm just like, I come like, and I'm just like, what? Like, how did we arrive at this valuation? I'm okay. I'll, I'll take a hundred million dollars. I'll take a billion dollar valuation, but walk me through. Walk, please walk me through how you came up with it. And, I, and I'll be the first check-in. And I never got an answer then. And I still don't get an answer now. I just get lower numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I still get a lower valuation. In fact, I was talking to someone the other day who, uh, who's very, who was very like intellectually honest. And he, he told me like, you know, six months ago, we were trying to raise this valuation, exactly the same round, exactly the same terms. Now, that with all that happened with like the public markets and the secondary markets, um, this is the valuation that we're trying to raise it now. And it's dramatically lower, right? So I told him, okay, so what is it like, what is it that changed in the way you looked at your enterprise that caused you to change the valuation so much? He's like, the market tanked. I'm like, okay, that's great. But what are the prospects? Like, how did that change the prospects for your business? He said, no, no, no. You think about this wrong. It's not a science. It's an art. So I thought, I thought it was very humorous comment, but I also thought it reflected like the ethos of the market. In many ways, if we looked at like the venture market a year ago, people were upset about these valuations being bid up. You go to a private round and it starts off raising maybe at 20 or $30 million. It gets interest for some investors and then some investors want to allocate a lot more capital. So there's no way that, uh, to maintain the dilution except by increasing the valuation. So people would bid up these rounds. And if you think about if you think about these private investments as nothing more than just a product, there's a supply and demand for a scarcity of the, this uh, this product with a high demand from the from the from the like a capital inflow perspective will mean that the price of these things will go up. So that's what happened. Now that the cost of capital has gone up, and this this is more macro as as less to do with the, the crypto space, and there is less liquidity and there's less demand chasing it, you should, we shouldn't be surprised that the, the valuations are going down. The price of these things are also going down. But I have still not seen either a year ago, two years ago, or today, like simple reasoning about how one values a network or not even a network, how somebody values like a company that's built, like behaves like a SaaS company on blockchain. It does a service, it has employees, it has a balance sheet, it has a PL, and it's doing a service for someone. Like a good example of this is like all these staking providers. I mean, they're really just good old like businesses with, with a simple cash flow stream that you can model. And I've the pervasive type, uh, the pervasive way in which people evaluate, uh, evaluate these deals and like value these enterprises is not very scientific. And I still find that surprising. But here's where we are today. And I think, I think there is a return of like to sanity. I think there's enough informed investors in the space that are able to come back and say, okay, 
we had to deploy capital at some point. And maybe we weren't happy with these evaluations, but we had to have some sort of exposure. And or maybe we introduced a new mandate for exposure. So we just sort of, you know, we held our nose and we went in. Now we have a little bit more time, a little bit more space, maybe even a little bit less capital. But, you know, we have time to think about these deals and maybe think about how we structured them. First of all, if you look at if you look at how like crypto venture deals are structured, they're very strange. If you if you take like a term sheet for like, you know, from, uh, for like a, 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 a new L1 and, and then like the, the staff or the warrants that come with them or whatever. And you show that to someone from like, you know, Silicon Valley, or, you know, uh, you showed it to like any of any of any. I won't mention names, any of those guys. They will look at you and be like, this is bizarre. What, what kind of terms are you guys doing here? What kind of like what kind of hustle is this? Right. The terms are so different because like. The business prospects are very different. Like in one case, you're trying to launch a network and perhaps this network has a token and this token is valued in some odd way and it's distributed in some way, very unlike what you would have in terms of like a liquidity event for like traditional equity. So the, just the, the, even the structure of these deals are very, very different in, in crypto. But I think we will see a little bit more sanity and I think we will see a little bit more traditional terms come to these these deals and i also think it's good for founders in the long term i mean because if you if you raise at these crazy valuations and ultimately your product does not meet those expectations then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because when you need to raise capital again it's just a much lower valuation um so i i honestly think it's healthier for the entire ecosystem but no it's Interesting to uh, kind of get your take on it. Maybe to pivot a little bit from the conversation uh, into some of the more technical sides. Um, you and I talk a lot about blockchains and blockchain scaling. Uh, I think uh, you have a very um, unique perspective just with your background uh, in the PhD and the math side on how some of these things work. Um, so maybe like touch upon like your thoughts more broadly on layer twos. Um, and kind of how you think those will fit into blockchain ecosystem going forward. Sure, sure. So um, this idea of a layer two is like very qualitatively, it, it, it's as follows. We have a network, we'll call that the layer one, that could be Ethereum, that could be Solana, that could be Avalanche, that could be whatever. And the network is optimized for a certain type of behavior. It has a, it has a consensus mechanism, it has a certain number of nodes or, or like a, a an optimal target for the number of nodes. It has uh, uh, a certain block size. All of these parameters that go into running a network, and it happens to be that the network is suited for a not all functions, but a subset of functions. There are certain things that a network can do very well. An example of this would be like uh, we talk about Bitcoin. It's very, very good at like in at like being decentralized and like securely transferring uh, uh, coins between one wallet to the other. Solana has very high throughput. It does that very, very well, perhaps at the expense of other things, right? Uh, Ethereum, for example, is a, is a, is a very decentralized uh, uh, state transition machine that allows people to like, they, it, it brought on this paradigm of like composable programming, this idea that smart contracts, you can write them, they can be autonomous, they can execute by themselves, and they can interact with each other, they can share state, all of these sort of ideas. But it's suboptimal in many other ways. For example, I, Solana and Ethereum optimize for completely different functions. And the fact that we talk about them in the same breath is, I mean, it's like talking about sports. It's like saying, you know, basketball and football are related. I mean, they're sports, but they do very different things. Yeah. So there came the idea, okay, I have a layer one that, that optimizes for certain functions, but I want it to do other things, certain types of transactions with a certain frequency, with a certain latency. 
with a certain with a certain uh, like variable uh, level of security, for example. So can I start moving uh, like can I start moving the execution burden, the communication burden? maybe even the data storage burden, can I start moving these things off-chain? And the word off-chain just means not on the L1. I'm somehow outsourcing this to somebody else that in some way is related, is tied back to the network. And people say that L2s are, they're tied to the network in the sense that every once in a while, they have to settle back to the layer one. They, somehow they inherit the security of the L1. That's how people like to talk about it. And the the... The paradigm that started initially was with like distributed ledgers is let's do as much as possible on chain. Let's store everything on chain. Let's calculate everything on chain. Let's communicate with each other all, all on chain, which works great when you have like a thousand users. The second you start scaling to millions or tens of millions or hundred millions of users, you realize that the majority of these networks were not designed uh, to handle that, that sort of uh, throughput. Um, and instead, you, uh, uh, the new paradigm is, well, how can I start moving things off chain? How can it, without going back to square one, square one is having a centralized operator, asking them to update the state for me, trusting them that they will update the state correctly. I have no way to know whether they did it or not. I mean, if you go to a bank today, that's essentially how it works. You, you sort of give them your money. You assume that they protect it. You, you, I mean, I'm assuming you don't, you don't like monitor your checking account balance every single second. They could change it and you would not be privy to it. And they could change it simultaneously in a way that like you wouldn't be privy to it. So, and you just have to trust them. There's an element of trust. But what if I tell you, and that's not me, what if somebody could come tell you, I can bring back that element of centralization, which might sound like, ooh, what are we doing here? Without trust, right? I, I'm, I might actually get the performance of something that behaves maybe as a smaller centralized entity as opposed to like a, like a very decentralized network. But I maintain some aspect of the trust system. And that's when like the, the, the two flavors of like L2s come in, like, like uh, um, uh, fraud proofs and validity proofs, right? Uh, and people refer to like optimistic rollups, uh, things like Arbitrum, Optimism. They use fraud proofs to achieve like, uh, uh, to achieve um, um, uh, this, this type of layer two. And then uh, ZK rollups, or people call them that. Uh, they're really validity rollups that use validity proofs. And I make the distinction because you don't have to have uh, like a zero knowledge aspect in a validity proof. Uh, in fact, like, um, like the, the Starks and Snarks, which is the, like the, the the primitive that are used for these validity proofs, they don't necessarily guarantee like zero knowledge. So it's just more accurate to talk about validity proofs. But they come in two flavors, like I mentioned. One is optimistic, which assumes the following. It says, hey, I'm going to outsource a lot of these calculations. So people are going to, instead of submitting all of these transactions on chain one by one, I'm just going to submit them off chain to this operator who's going to batch them for me. He's going to send it to like a sequencer and they're going to compress these transactions, which by the way, you could do in any way you'd like, including using Snarks and Starks. I've, I've heard people discuss this idea that like Starks are only for validity proofs. That's not true. You can actually generate fraud proofs with like Starks and Starks, but you know, it's a minor detail. But you generate like a proof, which, which is just a compressed version of an like uh, an attestation to something, uh, you say all you know these thousand transactions that would have normally been submitted on chain. Here's like a compressed proof that they happen, and I'm going to submit them on chain. And in an optimistic setup, and that's where it gets its name. Everybody assumes that you're not lying to them. Everybody assumes that you're honest, but they're watching you. <laughs> and there's they're called watchers or sentinels or fishermen. I, I forget the exact terminology. 
But people are sitting there in like a classroom watching you make these uh, little proofs and submitting them on chain, these proposed blocks on chain. And they will, they are incentivized to catch you if you start to like mess around, if you misbehave, or if you start uh, presenting false information, or if you, you're acting in a way that's fraudulent. Somebody's going to raise a flag and say, I think you're, you're messing around. And here is a fraud proof. That's where it gets its name from. Here's a proof that you are committing fraud. And then everybody goes back and then recalculates the state transition and, and in front of everyone and says, there's an arbitration. There's a time period of arbitration. Um, uh, and and there, a jury of your peers says, aha, so one of you is wrong. One of you is uh, correct. The person who is wrong gets their stake. They have to bond the stake to be able to do this, gets their stake slashed. But there's a few, like, there's a few good things about the way this is done. And there's also a few things that are not so good. The good things is, is actually the, opti like the optimistic nature of it is probably the most important and defining feature. What that means is you can actually get a lot of throughput and, and a lot more performance by assuming that everyone is behaving properly. Because that means is you only have to produce these proofs, these fraud proofs. You only have to produce them when somebody suspects like malpractice. Somebody suspects somebody is being fraudulent. But in general, you don't actually produce them. So for the most part, people are just sitting there submitting transactions off chain. They're being compressed. They're being they're being uh, 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 submitted on chain, and they're just uh, they're cheaper and they're faster than what's happening at the L1. And every once in a while, you set an L1, and just you get lower gas costs and you get high performance. Great. But the problem is, what happens when I want to leave the system? And there's this idea of like withdrawal delay, and because of the optimistic nature of the system, and because you need a jury of your peers to check like who was misbehaving and who was not, there is like a natural like latency or, or, or period which people have to wait for people to produce the proofs and then for people to come in and check these proofs and, and to arbitrate between them. So if you, want, if you want it to forever live on the, L, on the L2, perhaps that's not a big deal. But if at some point, and you need to, because that's where this, the security aspect comes in, settle back the L1 and withdraw some of your funds to the L1, then there is this, uh, um, then there is this like structural delay. Another thing is if you if your the applications that you deploy on the L2 tend to be very very like data intensive. So if you need to like let's say you some application you need like a lot of financial data, you need the weather data, you need like a ton of like different data points that are going to be made available. And remember for the, for these fraud proofs to be produced, all of the data that you used uh, um, um, for the batching and to generate the proofs have to exist on chain. There has to be a native like data availability. Uh, layer there. Else, how would one be able to like uh, generate a fraud proof? If you don't give me the data, yeah. you say, by the way, here are the new transactions. Trust me, I'm, there's no way I can generate a fraud proof. So by definition, these optimistic systems have to have that data available. And if that data is very rich, that's quite burdensome. So these are sort of like the kind of trade-offs that you get. And the leaders in the space have to, of course, be uh, like Arbitrum and Optimism, uh, which you know people have followed for, for some time. Um, and they are um, they are making real strides in the space, but it's still I think it's still very very nascent. But the the one question that's that comes with the L two is that is there enough applications to even like require that all, all of this work on the L twos? And I don't know if I have the answer to that. Not yet. Not yet. If you look at a lot of the like uh, the L twos, the blocks are mostly empty. Yeah. Right? But to to, to not skip the uh, the one that I have a bias towards because I, I think it's mathematically elegant and it, it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Validity proofs is the other way of, of is the other flavor of these L2s. And they require a completely different set of assumptions. 
they are sort of if we call it like fraud proofs or like optimistic uh um like optimistic uh uh l2 then we'll call the the validity proofs pessimistic they assume by default that everything is false and the only allowable state transitions are ones that are ones that are presented with a proof so here comes the funny bit and here comes the reason why perhaps the optimistic and validity proof crowds they can compete it comes from the fact that you assume that every single uh, um, submission that occurs in an optimistic system is true, and only every, once in a while do you have to submit a fraud proof. The opposite is true with validity proofs. For every single proposed trans state transition, you have to produce a proof. So it means you're generating proofs all the time. Do you think over the long term, uh, fraud proofs remain? Or do you, and it's only validity proofs? Or do you think um, they'll both be used in tandem? Um, I, I'm I'm curious about this. I do think they lie on a spectrum, and this is not I'm not trying to cop out, but I do think they like the user has a lot more say than you and I. The user can decide what kind of assumptions they're comfortable with, what kind of costs they're comfortable with. I personally think that zk eats all, or like validity proofs eats all. That everything can be enshrined in that in that framework. Yeah. Everything can be done in that way. But I do think there is a room. I mean. The the validity proofs that we have today are are still extremely nascent. I mean, we're still running a single uh, Starkware, which is uh, uh, the, the company that, that, that developed uh, Starknet and StockX. They are they're they're the only ones running a prover. It, running it is is it, it's still actually cold source. Like nobody is actually nobody outside has the has the open source code to run these provers. That's how early it is. So having excuse me having a an intermediary, something like an optimistic uh, system, something like what Arbitrum and Optimus do, is, is very valuable. Now, do I think that the, and it's one thing I, I forgot to touch upon, do I think that they are there forever? I don't think so. And here's why. The, another fundamental difference between both these systems is the lockup of capital, the capital efficiency. To, to behave as a person who like uh, batches these, uh, um, uh, transactions or or anything is going on chain and you submit it to a sequencer and then they sort of submit it on chain as a proposed block, you have to bond a certain amount of, of tokens, a certain amount of capital that prevents you from misbehaving. Because like we said, at some point, if, if there's an arbitration and it turns out that you're wrong, you're slashed. And if the person who is accusing you of being wrong turns out to be wrong, they're slashed. And this is all on the optimistic side. This is all on the optimistic side. There's no there's no bonds at stake on invalidity proofs at all. Because you don't require, you're, you're not required to trust anyone. These are uh, fundamentally like, they, they, they attest to computational integrity and you don't need to, to, to put a bond in case that you are wrong. You can't be wrong. You can't be mischievous. But the problem is, and I'll steal another, I'll steal another uh, comment from uh, Kevin, who was on the same podcast with Shuram, Kevin from, from, uh, from Avalaz. I share exactly the same philosophy as he does, which is I completely think that a proof of stake system works and it's fantastic and in principle it it, it really does there is like uh, a non-zero amount a positive non-zero amount of stake that that or distribution of stakes that people can put up that can cause them to behave optimally i think finding that distribution of stakes is practically almost impossible or that it requires extremely sophisticated uh like mathematical modeling that i haven't seen and so Deciding what amount of stake is good enough, it runs into the same problem as, as uh, proof of stake systems in general, which, which in general mean that I assume that you are economically incentivized to behave well. And the way I guarantee this is by making sure that if you behave well, you're rewarded. And if you don't behave well, you are penalized. Yeah. 
I think the penalty by default should be the opportunity cost. But trying to introduce a slashing mechanism is, again, in principle, a wonderful idea. And I, I, I'm not contesting it, but I am contesting like the practical implementation. It is extremely difficult. And I, by the way, I don't think there is, even on, on Ethereum, for example, you have to post, and in and, and, and the POS version, you have, to, you have to post 32 ETH, for example, to be validated. Well, how do we come up with 32? I mean, I, I know in the past, like, it's, it's a technically inherited for, there was a, in order not to overwhelm the network at the time, that, that's how that number came. But first of all, that number surely has to be dynamic. And surely it's, it's very, very difficult to optimize for multiple things at the same time. In one case, they were optimizing for the bandwidth of the network. They were not optimizing for the economic behavior of the agents. But we're talking about an economic system, optimistic world of our economic systems at the end of the day. And, and so I just find it very, very difficult to believe that like we have just come up with these systems and this is the number that we have to, this is the number of, of bond or capital that you have to stake. And that's how we're going to do it. So I just, by default, I find it easier to, to think of a world in which we have like validity. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think kind of the optimistic side is kind of a stopgap until oh, you have more robust uh, validity proofs. Uh, I am optimistic over the long term. But once these block spaces get saturated, we'll start to use them more. Uh, like, but, and to be fair, like we haven't even given validity proofs even like a real like honest honest shot. Like the libraries that we use today, uh, 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 the the Cairo implementation that we have for for Starknet and StockX, like this stuff did not exist five years ago. Like I'll, I'll tell actually I'll tell you a funny story. Um, uh, personal. I was uh, my brother who studied computer science in the nineties. We were in uh, a car together once in the past year. And I was on the phone, I was talking to, to someone and we were talking about uh, ZKPs. I was just mentioning the idea of ZKPs. We were talking about some roll up, whatever. And I mentioned the word, I used the word ZKP. And at the end of the call, he, uh, we were still in the car and he looked at me and he said, hey, what did you mean by ZKP? Surely you, don't, you didn't mean like zero knowledge proofs. I said, no, that's exactly what I meant. That's, that's what we were talking about. He said, huh, like these people use this now? And I said, what do you mean? Yeah, of course. He said, well, when, we, when I was a student in, in the 90s, if you're studying computer science then, our professors, they would tell us about all of these wonderful mathematical constructs. And at the end of the lecture, they would say, by the way, this is completely impractical. Like it would take millions of years <laughs> to generate these proofs. Just forget about it. Like, it's a beautiful mathematical curiosity, but we'll never see it in our lifetimes. Yeah. I guess life, they meant by lifetimes like 20 years. <laughs> because 20 years later, here we are. Yeah. Completely practical. Compl like, for the most part, practical. So... This is, this is where we are. So we have people who, or not people, in general, like critiques of validity proofs, I don't think, they, they're certainly they're helpful from a technical side, but I don't think they even give validity proofs a fair shot. We've not even been a few years in town. Yeah. The Cairo white paper, for, for Christ's sake, was like a year old. It's not even a year old. So, so maybe going off this, uh, talk more or like kind of getting more into like Starkware and zero knowledge proofs and why you think they're so interesting, especially coming from like the math PhD background, why they're so fascinating. One from like the technical aspect, the mathematical point of view, but also how they're applicable to blockchains and how they'll be used kind of going forward. Sure. So the, the, the one disclaimer I'll say about like zero knowledge tech in general, it has nothing to do with blockchain. Like the, the, the idea of a zero knowledge proof or a validity proof, somebody attesting to, so here, okay, let's, let's make the distinction. A validity proof is the ability for me to solve a mathematical problem and demonstrate to you or prove to you, hence the name, that I've solved this mathematical problem 
without you having to re-execute exactly the same amount of computation that I did in order to arrive at that solution, because that would be moot. If I asked you, and I'll give you a simple example, if I asked you what the solution to a polynomial equation is, and let's say for simplicity, let's say it's quadratic, so it's, it's, it's squared, the highest power is, is x squared. And you, you come to me and say, oh my, hey, I, this is a mathematical equation, this is a quadratic polynomial, and I know the roots of this equation, I have the solution to this equation. One way to show, one way to show me that you know the, root, the solution of this equation is to actually tell me what the solutions are. Another way is to tell me, listen, instead of showing you how I, how I like solve this problem using like the quadratic formula or however way you solved it, or like the intersection of lines or whatever, let me just show you that I know I can factor the problem, a polynomial, into like the product of, uh, into two products of uh, uh, polynomial A and polynomial B, both of first order. And I know it's of the, of the form x minus a product x minus b is equal to zero. And, for, and I can prove to you that I know the value of the constants a and b are the solution to the polynomial because this exact equation for all values of a and b will exactly evaluate to zero. Aha, so you've demonstrated to me that you know the solution, but you didn't have to walk me through the entire detail. And it's not as complicated to verify. The same is true with like much more difficult uh, 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 like uh, polynomials, let's say, uh, seventh order or eighth order, it turns out these polynomials, there's no, there's a beautiful theorem of mathematics that shows that like you can't actually uh, like write them down in closed form. So you have to solve them using a computer or using a calculator. And if you had to like prove to me that, uh, uh, or if I had to like check whether your answer is true and I had to actually solve the equation, it would, it would require me to have a computer and like relatively sophisticated understanding of like how to solve polynomial equations, which I don't. I just take the numbers that you give me and I just like plug them into this equation and it, it always evaluates to zero. I'm like, ah. So this is the idea of a validity proof that you can you can demonstrate to me after doing a lot of hard work that you solve the solution and I can verify that 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 is truly the solution in a relatively simple way. Now, the zero knowledge aspect of that is one more layer. It's that I can do that without even revealing what the answers are at all or betraying anything about the answer. And the fa the famous example that people give, uh, which I like a lot, is is um like the, the Alibaba cave problem in which. In which there is a cave, and that cave is. Have you, have you heard of this one? No. Okay. Well, this, this is my favorite. Some people use like the, the three color problem, other different type of examples. This one, this one I think is the most intuitive. It's not exact, but it's, it's pretty close. Um, there's a cave that's partitioned in the middle with a metal door, and that metal door has like a keypad, which you have to input a four digit password, and it lets you in. If, you have, if it's correct, the door opens, and you go to the other side. And it's, it's in a circle. So uh, if we both stand at the entrance of this, uh, like, um, uh, uh, circle and the, the cave is on one end, uh, the, the partition door is on the other side. Uh, the only way for you, for you to come do full circle and see me again is if you go through that door. I know that if, like, if I saw you, you must have gone through that door. There's no other physical way for you to get. So I tell you, show me that you know the key, the answer, not the answer, rather, the, the password. Show me that you know the password that you need to put in the keypad uh, that unlocks this door. You say, okay, there's two ways for me to do this. One, I can just tell you the password and you can go and you can try it yourself and it'll open. That's not interesting because then I betrayed to you what the password is. What if there was a way for me to actually demonstrate to you with vanishingly small probability that I'm lying, that I'm not lying, and um, without actually telling you what the password is? So you say, okay, I'll say, okay, I'm, I'm all ears, show me. You say, okay, you and I will stand here right at the door, pick a direction. You remember, you can traverse the circle counterclockwise or clockwise. You say, pick a direction and don't tell me what it is. In fact, write down on a piece of paper and don't show it to me. Write down 10 different directions sequentially. And I will show you that every single time. You say, go counterclockwise twice, then one, count, then one clockwise, then twice counterclockwise, then 
three times clockwise. And every single time I will appear at the other side. So surely I must know the answer. Like, and if I do this enough times, probabilistically with like asymptotically converging probability, um, I can't be lying to you. And so that, that's exactly how these work. Now, the one thing that's, that's slightly different is that this is like an interactive proof in a way that like I tell you, I have to tell you each time and I can't give you the list beforehand because then you can sort of fake it. You can like, you can go on one side, you can wait until I look away and then you can go to the other side and then you can go back. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's sort of, so you can't really know the list upfront. It has to be sort of encrypted or you don't know it. Um, and this idea of making this proof non-interactive. And how do you make it non-interactive? There's this famous like uh, uh, idea in cryptography known as the, the Fiat-Shamir heuristic. And instead of me sending you like a list or like randomly asking you to like do stuff for me, I use hash functions or like hashes of like Merkle roots that, uh, that like you can actually use the environment around you to get a source of randomness without having to talk to me. And it makes, you don't, we don't have to communicate with each other. I can just talk to you once and you can go and do your own thing and you can prove to me that you in fact do know this thing and we don't have to talk to each other. It's non-interactive. But that's sort of, that's sort of the idea. And the reason, the reason we got into all of this was because I wanted to demonstrate that it had nothing to do with blockchains. It could be interesting for blockchains, but it could be interesting for a lot of other things, including suppose that somebody had to do a very sophisticated calculation using like a cluster of supercomputers that nobody else in the world has access to, that it's practically impossible for anyone to even verify that you were even like being truthful or these, not just truthful, but these calculations were done correctly. And one way to do it is using a validity proof. You say, here is the list of outputs that you asked for me and you paid me money for, you know, for the CPU hours or whatever, for, you know, for me to do this work for you. And here's a small proof that I did this correctly. And you don't have to trust the operator. You can trust the integrity of the maths. And that is the great paradigm. And a lot of this, I mean, as you said, is kind of only, I mean, really kind of got turbocharged by blockchains uh, to uh, just because there's so much money uh, in the blockchain ecosystem, uh, a lot more money has kind of been thrown at advancing this research and bringing it back to the forefront uh, to use blockchain or to help scale blockchains. Uh, but it's it's definitely interesting, kind of how it's progressed, like over the last like ten years or so. Well, it, in many ways, it was it was the the question: Can how do I behave? And, and, and like a Byzantine system. And how do I guarantee like consensus in a Byzantine style system? And that means that like, it is possible for us to like behave, but it's also possible for us to lie to each other in a certain setting. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that like trying to build like a truly Byzantine fault tolerant system is very computationally intensive. And like, if you try and do it any, anywhere outside the lab, where we're talking about like a few thousands of users, 10,000 users with like tens of validators, it just, it's prohibitive. So there has to be a way for me to like decouple like trust and verification and move a lot of this off chain while maintaining sort of fault tolerance. And that's like, that's the, that's literally the purview of cryptography. It allows you to do things without revealing certain information or it allows you to, to trust maths as opposed to trusting people. So like, I think the, the, the end game is trust, but it's not trusting the operator. It's not trusting the agent. It's not trusting the game theoretic incentives. It's trusting the maths. For sure. Out of all of that, and like the unique properties of uh, validity proofs um, and zero knowledge proofs, what are you most excited at for in like the application of like blockchains? I think besides the L2 space that we talked about, which is in many ways uniquely enabled by validity proofs, this idea that uh, 
has come up recently of like application specific application specific chains. This idea that you can run one chain that is optimized to do one thing. Let's say it's, you know trading assets or, or minting NFTs or playing a game or whatever. We we know from like general purpose computing that like in general having a very specific environment that is optimized to do one thing and one thing only is more performant and is cheaper than having like a general purpose system. So is there a way using these validity proofs to like scale fractally? And I know you don't like that word, but this idea of fractal scaling, this idea that like I can have a general all-purpose base layer, let's call that StarkNet, let's call that the layer two, and I can actually build application-specific chains on it. So a layer three. Layer three. You said it, not me. <laughs> you said it, not me. Um, layer All right, three. so uh, let's get into layer threes. What are your thoughts, pros and cons, and why, why you think they're interesting? Okay, so let's first define a layer two from the from the perspective of like the operators. You have you have uh, 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 in any validity proof system, you have essentially two agents: the the uh, the verifier and the prover. So the verifier contract always exists on the base layer. It exists on, uh, let's say, Ethereum. The prover exists off-chain. Okay? The idea is that the prover, the prover sends the proof on-chain, submits it on-chain. It is executed in a way that's exponentially cheaper than it is to generate the proof. That's sort of the purpose of these uh, like succinct systems. And a binary yes, no. This, this state transition is either true, or if it's false, it never makes its way on-chain. Literally, by virtue of submitting that proof on-chain, it must mean that it's true, assuming that the implementation is done correctly. Now, what if I tell you that, okay, let's move the verify contract to layer two. Let's, instead of having the verify contract on layer one, let's actually post it on layer two and have the verifications done on, on layer two. Is it possible to like recursively submit these proofs? So now I have this idea of a recursive proof, a proof that's submitted from the L3 to the L2. That's then uh, another proof is generated for that combination. And then that's submitted to the L1. And you're going to ask, well, what's the point of that? Or what's the, what's the benefit and what's the drawback? Well, the benefit of that is you can literally magnify like these types of like scaling. You can actually compress. If, if the transition from layer two to layer one gives you a thousand X compression, and literally in terms of size, and then a layer three to layer two gives you another thousand X, you can actually compress like what you were doing at the layer three down to layer one by a factor of a million, which is extraordinary. And you're limited only by reason. You could literally do this recursively. There's no, it's actually not like there's no hardware requirements. You can, the, the cost of generating these proofs, uh, at least in the Stark uh, framework, is actually only like, uh, like roughly logarithmic in terms of like the size of, of uh, the proof, uh, which actually means you can like make the proof a lot larger without having to incur that much cost. So it's actually not even a hardware problem because I remember I had a discussion with someone who they were asserting that you run into limitations that way. You actually don't. It scales very, very well. You can do a layer three, a four, a layer ten if you wanted to. It would not cost that much more. That's the beauty of like logarithmic functions. But you're you're limited by common sense, and that is at some point you get enough. If you've reduced the if you've reduced the the the, the gas cost from a, a few dollars per transaction to one one millionth of a dollar per transaction, at some point you're like, okay, it's probably not worth the opportunity cost to like uh, essentially build a, an extra n plus one layer, right? At some point it's good enough. It's good enough. So that that's really where it stops, and the the one argument, uh, uh, and and that actually holds true also for optimistic systems as well, is how do you get cross rollup or cross L three or cross L two interoperability, right? You have this these sort of silo chains, and they each of them does something, and some of them might store their data, some of them might not store their data. I need them to interact with each other, 
And this is annoying to do because they're not all on, they're not, essentially, they're not sharing the same state because uh, at least the same temporary state. And my answer to that is, well, and hence recursive, uh, uh, like recursive proofs, hence moving to a layer three and not a layer two, because all of a sudden you now have to bridge. Remember all the, all the layer twos, they, they talk to each other. They bridge through the L1. Yes. Right. So what if I say, well, they bridge to each other through the L2s. It's actually much faster and much cheaper as well. So there is a method to the madness. It's not just it's not just let's try and see what happens. If you design them in such a way where you can have certain guarantees and for certain applications, maybe you're not so interested in data availability. Maybe not everything has to be posted on chain. There is a world in which these things are actually very, very composable by having using these recursion proofs. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me, like, in theory, and I get, like, the data compression uh, and, like, reducing gas costs. My, like, biggest thing, and I think we've kind of seen it, like, yeah, on, at least from the L1 standpoint, there's just not very many users yet. Uh, I mean, I think that's a variety of factors, but I think just how people have kind of become accustomed to, like, the Web2 type experience we need to make it as cheap and as fast as possible. And so my only qualm today with like L3s or like even L2s for, for some standpoint is like, what is the latency introduced when you keep doing these data compressions? And then ultimately, um, uh, the latency, but like, when is the transaction actually final, final? Uh, and I think like, because a lot of this like, or once we start adding all these like different complexities, we're kind of throwing it on the users and the users don't like understand any of it. Uh, so I'm just curious, like over the long term to kind of see how it will unfold. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I am curious. Well, to answer one question, that's very easy to answer. When is a transaction final? When it, when it makes it to the L1. And even then it might not be final depending on the type of consensus that you have. But let's say, let's say you assume like, you know, one block, once it makes it into the chain, that's it. Sort of how Avalanche does it, it's final. Once it makes it there, that's final. Beyond that, it's still not final. It's still, it, it, it's still a proposed block. Um, you're a fan of parallelization. And it, you know, um, and we know uh, a, a chain which, not, which will not be named, which is wonderful. That, that 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 uses that as like the, the native primitive the, the native idea is to, to paralyze a lot of the execution so long as like the state is not shared or it's not there's no sort of overlap you can execute things in parallel so can you with these with these l3 so can you with these uh provers suppose instead of using i mean that's how uh, uh like cairo works or how stockner works today they have a, a sharp a shared prover there's one prover that everybody can submit uh, transactions to for multiple applications and it sort of goes together and generates proof but you can have multiple sharps and you can also have like dedicated provers that all execute or all produce these proofs for different l3s in parallel you don't actually have to wait and then they can be aggregated on an l2 for example and be submitted once at at some at some frequency to the l1 so you can actually get parallel like behavior using these uh, uh like recursive stocks or, or these recursive proofs so in many ways, like I don't think latency will be a problem at the L2 or L3 level. And, and we've, we've just, we're literally just scratching the surface on yeah. the hardware for provers. Yeah. Uh, whether it's ASIC style, FPGAs, we've literally not even like scratched the surface. And I have, I have no doubt in, in the same way that 10 years ago, the, in the same way that we have a Moore's law for you know, general computation and for generally, you know, the number of transistors on a, a, a diode and whatnot. Um, 
the same the the, uh, the same will be true for proofs. And so I think we we it's really just a matter of time. And and latency will not be the issue for these for these uh, types of systems. Makes sense. Yeah, uh, I'm curious to kind of see how it plays over the long term. Um, maybe to kind of stick on this scaling topic, um, the industry today has kind of started to move towards more modular architecture versus, say, like monolithic of like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, how do you kind of see these two kind of playing out over the long term? Uh, or what do you think is like more optimal architecture for these blockchains? So th this one's a bit more nuanced. And uh, also part of it is I have not like I have not studied every single possible combination of like a modular uh, blockchain versus like a monolithic blockchain because uh, to give you like a fair answer, because there are combinations of modular blockchains that might work better than certain monolithic blockchains. But just to say all modular blockchains will be superior to monolithic blockchains is, is nonsense. And the same is true the other way around. I do have one qualm, however, with this general idea of like modularity. Everything could be separated out. You can separate out settlements, execution, uh, data availability, whatever. If you assume that there is a scenario in which data is not available, or like that is uh, uh, violated somehow because of a dishonest majority. That doesn't just threaten the data availability layer. That actually threatens the consensus layer. That threatens the actual blockchain. So there's a lot that goes out of the window. If we, if we start assuming that we need a, we're designing for a world in which we need everything to be modular, in many ways, we're designing for a world that doesn't exist. We're designing for a world in which consensus on the L1 is subverted and we have to resort to some sort of like recourse with data availability. So I just don't think that I don't think we've there's enough thought that went into what the Venn diagram of assumptions are with like a monolithic L1 and like a module L1. And what happens when as soon as I start to detach these different functions from an L1 and have them become modular. The second I start worrying about when these are, are uh, like, for example, when data is available, the second I start to have generate proofs of that, I really, this is like the least of my worries. I should really be worrying about, well, what happens to my consensus? So in many ways, I think that it will be the dominant paradigm. I am again of the opinion that trying to optimize as much as possible on the, L, on the monolithic serial, even L1, before worrying about like trying to optimize either using parallelization or either using modularity. There's a lot that could be done on the L1. And what we don't think about, we think about the outputs or the, 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 the gains that we're going to get from introducing a modular architecture. But what we don't think about is the, the sheer enormity of the task that has to go through, that we have to take care of latency, that we have to make sure that like no security violations are, uh, uh, occur, that we have to uh, make sure that all these systems communicate together. Like there's a lot that goes in from a practical perspective. And in many ways, I, then I, I'll, I'll resort back to what I said about uh, like proof of stake and optimistic systems and proof of stake systems in general. Like I, in theory, I think it might be a great idea. But yeah. in practice, I might, I think it, like there's a lot more that we're going to worry about if these, if these assumptions are violated when it comes to modularity. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I think it's an interesting point of view to attack, but... I'm curious, and I and all these blockchains, I think like they'll all work. It's just to what degree and what 
problem are they actually solving? And then from an engineering and user standpoint, which one works the best? Um, and there are a lot of ways to hand, like, data is not an issue. We have, like, storing data somewhere is not the problem that, that we run into, like, today. We are, uh, the throughput, the throughput uh, bottlenecks is, is the paradigm that we're trying to solve. And how to do like distributed consensus and and uh, decentralized computation in general uh, in a way that's very cheap. It is not where do we store this data. There are ways to store the data, and there are ways to do it securely, and there are ways to incentivize people to do it. It's not a big deal. And there are ways to optimize, like I said, to optimize the L1 and to optimize the monolithic layer well before we even worry about well before we even worry about like modularity yeah that's where i was kind of going i i I fully agree like we haven't even really explored the limits of a modular l1 and how far we can push or of a monolithic l1 and how far we can push that before even uh trying to do these different things like sharding or whatever different scaling solutions and so i appreciate that some blockchains are taking the approach to do that (laughs) Uh, and see how hard you can actually push that before you trying these different avenues. That's right. That's right. Um, awesome, man. Well, maybe like, I'm curious, we've been chatting for oh, wow. about an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, though, maybe uh, before we sign off, um, what are kind of like any spicy takes or... Uh, things that you would say are contentious in the space that you hold near and dear to your heart things that uh things that are spicy. i have a lot of spicy things i mean let's hear them do a spicy spicy data <laughs> dump um if you look at DeFi today the majority of primitives on there that financial primitives that were built are objectively inferior to what we have in like traditional finance like you wouldn't, if you were at a bank or if you were at a trading firm, you would never touch this stuff. It is so inferior. It's not even worth your time. It is laughable to some of these people. It, it, it is, it is. And we've not even crossed that, like, chasm. We're not, we're not even close. Is that because of the underlying L1 or just the Apple, the actual application that is being built is just inferior? I think both. Okay. I think the underlying L1 is not performance. And the primitives that are built on there, they're replicas. They're di- inferior digital replicas of what we already have. Right, and you see a lot of this in the space, and it's you don't want to be like a, a party, but we don't want to be, just everything you see like, oh, this sucks. Oh, we have something better. But you just have to be critical, and you have to be objective, and you have to be like, listen, if the whole point of uh, if the whole premise is to like revolutionize the way we transact with each other, and like change the way markets are structured, and change the way people like send money to each other, we have to do better from a technological perspective and from a theoretical perspective as well. You can't come to me and say, hey, I want, you know, I'm proposing this money market or I'm proposing this like DEX or whatever. And it's using like, you know, rudimentary mathematics that like in many ways is like structurally flawed and that it's subject to like, you know, very clear ways you can front run the stuff, very clear ways you can, you know, adverse selection, you can, you know, toxic flow, trade against these things. and this is like, you don't need to build these systems to like recognize these things. But there's also been like very good work describing why some of these systems may or may not work. Um, shout out to the guys at, at Gauntlet who do wonderful research. And, and uh, um, uh, they've shown like what the limits of these systems are and what the edge cases actually that these systems might be useful for. But I think that's where we are today. We are at the point of edge cases. We may have a point. Uh, Two or three points of potential. We say, hey, maybe this in five or ten years, maybe this becomes better. But the majority of what we've built or what has been built today is useless. 
And it's not useless in the sense that we didn't learn anything from it, but we can't use it as a primitive. We can't, we literally cannot use it. And the other side of that coin or token is the tokenomics. Okay. We've had the, the era of central banking started in about 19, 1910s is, is when we've had like the modern form of the central bank. And we've spent about 100 years, maybe 110 years, people are trying to figure out monetary economics. And we've thrown the, the finest economic minds, if, if there are such a thing, I'm kidding, uh, at these problems. Um, and we've yet to come with like simple models for how to model the economy, the, be, the behavior of agents in the economy, and how to like develop ex ante uh, uh, a system that uh, by monetary expansion and, and monetary contraction, we can like incentivize people to behave in a certain way and maintain uh, stable unemployment and stable uh, price levels, which is sort of like the mandate of, 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 of the Federal Reserve, at least, which is sort of the de facto central bank of the United States. We've not gotten there yet. So to expect uh, uh, people that are like casually producing these like tokenomic systems to get this right is absurd. It's completely <laughs> absurd. Yeah. And, and to say that like, oh, but you know, we have these tokens and they do this, uh, our tokens do very little. The tokens that in this, in like we have today are, uh, we've, we haven't even lived like one cycle of, of tokenomics. Most of these tokens, like let's say they vest over the, or they, the emissions occurs either, you know, ad infinitum or five, six, seven years when the majority of supply comes on. We haven't even gone through that cycle yet. So I think the, besides the financial primitives, the tokenomics, the, the tokenomic models that we have today are completely and utterly absurd and need to be like changed from first principles. And the fact that today, like you can't even point, you have to ask people, tell me one example of like a, token, a tokenomic system that you do like, as opposed to one that you don't like. The majority of them don't work. And the ones that work don't behave in the way that as, as we're designed. And we're not even sure they might work now. I mean, in many cases, if you look at like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to like throw dirt, but if you look at like some of these games that had, you know, people were pointing to these as, you know, miraculous, miraculous tokenomic systems that, you know, are going to change the future of France, these, these tokenomic systems. And lo and behold, six months later, right? I mean, the, the whole thing, uh, shambolic, shambolic. So uh, it's the same thing. We haven't even tried out these, these, um, these tokenomic systems and we haven't given them enough thought. And surely the most interesting thing in Web3, in addition to the fact that it's this, you know, we can have these decentralized primitives, is the fact that we can use a token incentive in addition to the normal economic incentive of any enterprise to incentivize users to behave in a way they would otherwise not behave. We have yet to even scratch the surface on that. And so I think people that attest to like, you know, tokenomics and people talk about like DeFi primitives and DeFi because I think it's the most mature one. I think it, we are nowhere near. So my, my, those are maybe maybe spicy takes, I guess. I like it. I, don't know. I like it. Well, really appreciate uh, your time. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to enjoy this podcast. But uh, no, thank you. And super happy we met in New York and happy to call you a friend. Uh, yeah, just the, thank you. The pleasure and distinction is all mine. Thank you. Thank you for spending the time with me. Thank you for you know, this beautiful, beautiful day, beautiful podcast. Shout out to Dean. Where is Dean? Uh, he's not here. <laughs> But maybe our, our friend, uh, Dean Krause, who um, uh, is very kind enough to host us here, uh, he, was supposed to, he was supposed to come on just to say hi. Make a quick cameo. Make a quick cameo. But uh, we'll he's do, sort of, he'll, he'll get his own podcast he'll get his and own he can uh, <laughs> show up and do it, get some limelight. Yeah, we'll, we'll find him. Uh, he, yeah. So, uh, again, thank you. Thank you for your intellectual prowess. Thank you for like keeping 
me intellectually honest like sometimes they say things you're like eh, that doesn't make any sense explain it to me more then, eh, i might be wrong but yeah it's, it's, likewise, it's likewise. my it's my pleasure thank you omar yeah thank you <laughs>